just going to go right into reading the text here from <clears throat> Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also has God granted repentance that leads to life. We are continuing in this series, and we've been going through like a little mini-series in the bigger series. The big series is Becoming as Church, but in this mini-series, about four parts here, it's bringing the gospel, showing love by bringing the gospel to your enemies. Loving your enemies, as Jesus told us to do, but loving them in this way of bringing the gospel to them. And so, Last week, we, you know, we, we had the story, incredible story of Cornelius, this Roman officer, this, this person that would have been not just considered unclean because he was a Gentile, but also he would have been somewhat resented, even hated, because he was a Roman officer, the occupying army. And even though we know from the story, we know that that he was actually a pretty cool dude. We know he was a nice guy. Um, we know that he believed in God and he was trying to do what is right and treat people fairly. The reputation of centurions was not that way. The reputation of Roman soldiers and Roman officers was not that way. And Peter has no idea. When Peter's being told to go to this centurion's house, he has no idea. He basically has to take the word of the men whom the centurion sent. And so here, Peter, knowing that he's about to violate so many different of his own Jewish traditions, he's about to go into a Gentile's house. 
And not only that, he doesn't really know what's going on. Could this be a trap? Could this be someone who just wants to make fun of him? Who knows? But he goes anyways. And this incredible work of God occurs because Cornelius had not, wasn't just going to have this little private secret meeting with Peter to kind of figure it out. Cornelius had invited everybody in his house and many of his friends, and they're all there. And when Peter shows up, it's nothing like what he expected. He has a house full of people, probably dozens, if not even up to a hundred. And the thing that they want to hear is they want to hear the gospel. They want to hear the gospel. And they, P- P- Peter proclaims the gospel to them, and in the midst of it, many of them express the, the faith and they have the Holy Spirit come upon them. Many of them are, are just immediately transformed. It's amazing. It's amazing that the church is, is living out what, what Jesus had said. Love your enemies. And, and the enemies were not actually being good. Jesus was saying, love your enemies even when they persecute you. persecute you. Love your enemies even when they crucify you. Love your enemies even when they mock you. Love your enemies even when they want to throw you in prison or lie about you and take everything that you have. Love your enemies anyways, but in this case, Peter loved his enemies and they became Christians. It's amazing, wonderful, incredible. You would have thought there would have been enormous celebrations in the church of Jerusalem. But is that what we read? In verse 2, When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. The circumcision party are people in the church. They criticized him. They didn't celebrate the miracle. They didn't celebrate the new brothers and sisters in Christ. They didn't look at this and say, oh my gosh, look at what God is doing. They criticized him. And they didn't even criticize him for sharing the gospel. They didn't criticize him for baptizing them. They criticized him for eating with them. They were so focused on, on the thing that they thought was wrong. They were so focused on what, you know, what was negative, what Peter, you know, Peter, you, you, you know, you shouldn't have sat down and ate with those Gentiles. They were so focused on that that they missed, they missed the work of God. They missed the miracle. Don't want to preach a second sermon, but let me just tell you, Be careful, Christians. When we become so focused on what's wrong with the church or what's wrong with other Christians, we sometimes are just like this circumcision party. We miss the work of God. We miss the blessings. We miss the miracles that are happening all around us. 
But that's their critique. Their critique is you're eating with the Gentiles. And what this means is they either were just disregarding their salvation, the salvation of these Gentiles. Like, it didn't really happen. That's not matter. That doesn't matter. That didn't happen. You, you, you ate with them. Or they're saying, oh, it actually did happen, but you still shouldn't have eaten with them. You know, you actually did bring the gospel to these people, and they did respond, but you still shouldn't have eaten with them. Which means, you know, the position of the circumcision party, if those are the two possibilities, it, it means that either they thought that, you know what, okay, we're going to let them in. We're going to let them in, but when they come in, they have to become just like us. They have to become just like us. We'll let them in, but they've got to become just like us. Or they might have thought, like, we're going to let them in. They can come in, but we're going to keep them separate. Unless they become like us, uh, they're going to have to be you know, worshiping in their own place. Remember, they didn't have church buildings back then. They were going into people's homes. So like, okay, all you Gentile Christians, you can kind of hang out together. And all of us, you know, traditional Jewish Christians, we're going to hang out together. So they let them in, but they would separate. And then the third possibility is they're not only complaining about the eating. They don't want to let them in at all. Remember, the mindset of this early church, and, and I don't like to be too hard on them because I'm not going to tell you I would have been much better. But their mindset was they could only take a bit of God's vision, a bit of God's purposes at a time. And so they understood what Jesus had said. And they understood that they were supposed to take the, the gospel to the entire world. And they understood that it was by the power of the Spirit they would do it. But they thought, they thought it meant they were only to go to the Jewish people scattered around the world. They didn't think that God meant the Gentiles. And they've come a long way. They've come farther than most of us would have. If you remember, at the very, very beginning, when their when they're first there in chapter 2, and, there's, and, and the Holy Spirit comes upon on the church, and then they go out, and Peter preaches the sermon, and they go out, and they're speaking in, in these tongues of the people who've gathered, and they're doing that. A lot of these people are Jewish people from all over. They're not the, you know, the real faithful who lived in and around Jerusalem and Judea. They've come from all over. We know from the very beginning, they've already had to, like, in their minds, compromise a little bit because the Hellenized Jews were coming in. Again, those are the ethnically Jewish people that were culturally in every other way, Greek or Roman. So they're already letting the Hellenized Jews come in. But then, as we read a little bit later, Philip goes to Samaria, and he shares the gospel with the Samaritans. Now, they could at least kind of, a, you know, stomach that a little bit by going, okay, you know, at least they're partly ethnically 
Jewish. But now Gentiles? Gentiles? And so you can imagine, for some of them, it's been, it's been so much for them to even get to where they are now, allowing the Hellenized Jews to become Christians and allowing the Samaritans to become Christians. And the reason I don't want to get too judgy, the reason I don't want to get too judgy on them is because I know 2,000 years later, many Christians still struggle with the same attitudes and the same sentiments. In fact, I would argue that many Christians prefer and work toward a segregated church. We want a church of people who is basically more or less like us. That's where we feel good. That's where we feel comfortable. I don't mean believe like us. We should want people who believe like us. We should want people who look at the Word of God as being God's holy Word, authoritative, supremely authoritative in our lives. It's, it's God's inspired Word without mixture of error. We should, we should want that. We should want, as we sung in the last song, John let us in, we should want this unity of belief about the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Trinity, about the salvation that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. We should believe all of that. We should find unity in all of that. But for some reason, we don't just, we don't want to just connect and unite with all of the people, all the different kinds of people, all the different walks of life that people come from, all the different ethnicities, everything. We don't want that. We, we have our limits. Oh, we may be good enough to allow the Hellenists in or the Samaritans in, but we have our limits. And again, I'm not talking necessarily about you specifically, because maybe you've actually gotten to the point where your, your understanding of, of what Jesus was talking about and what God is doing in this world, you understand it. You understand that we find unity about, around our common beliefs, but we celebrate. We celebrate the fact that, that we are different. So it may not be you personally. It may not be our church. Our church may be better than a lot of churches in this regard. I don't know. But I'm going to tell you that you can see evidence of it, especially across the United States. I think it was Billy Graham who used to say, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in the United States. Because even though a lot of people back when Billy Graham was, you know, alive and saying these kind of things, you know, a lot of people were going to church, they were going to the church that was full of people like them. Some of you younger people are too young to remember this incredibly bad idea in the 90s, which was they wanted to try to build churches around 
people who are just alike. You had cowboy churches. You had, I think in Texas, there was a skater church. You know, all about just only for the skater culture. Oh, you could go if you wanted, but you really weren't going to fit in. We, we work towards segregating our churches. And when we do this, we miss the miracle. We, 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 we fall short of being the powerful testimony to the rest of the world of what God can do when he gets a hold of people and he transforms them in such a way and he unites them by his spirit that their differences don't matter. All that matters is their common faith in Jesus Christ and their desire to follow his word. It's all that matters. That translates into love for God. It translates into love for each other. And we miss it. And we see 2,000 years ago, it was there. For different reasons, it's there. And so, when we see this circumcision party criticizing Peter, they had their reasons. And I'm going to tell you, some of their reasons are better than some of our reasons. Their reason that they were like this, you know, if, if, if it's who we think they are from um, that when we read about them in chapter 15, that some of them are, are former Pharisees. Now think about that. We, we always think about about Paul and how Paul was a Pharisee and then he becomes a Christian and then he you know, becomes this great missionary. But Paul wasn't the first Pharisee to become a Christian. There were others. We even read about in the Gospel of John about Nicodemus. Some people think Joseph of Arimathea might have been. But we know there were others, many other Pharisees that were drawn to the Gospel became Christians, transformed. But you got to remember, they're not thinking like they're leaving their faith. Christianity and, and Judaism are very closely related. They're not thinking they're leaving their faith. They think, they're, they're thinking that, that they are, are correcting, fixing, fulfilling their faith. And so for them, it wasn't like they came out of this, this kind of immoral, pagan lifestyle, and then all of a sudden they became Christians, they were changed. They were coming out of being very devoted to God's word, trying to be, do what was right. And they were suddenly realizing, as Jesus had been trying to tell them, look, you're doing the right things for the wrong reasons. You, you, you need your life to change. You need your heart to be transformed, and it will only be done so when you have faith in Jesus Christ and when the Holy Spirit transforms you. They're, they're, they don't see there's any kind of contradiction yet. Eventually, eventually, Paul's going to help them understand what you guys are doing is actually 
weakening the gospel. What you're doing is you're actually pulling away from a gospel of grace and mercy, one that's based on faith, and you're, and you're making it about works. You're dragging it back to the empty ritualism that you just escaped. They had their reasons. Again, even though their reasons were wrong, they're better than some of our reasons because if we're sometimes pressed on it, if we're sometimes pressed like, why don't you want to be in a church that's full of people who are different from you, who may be younger than you or maybe older than you or maybe more educated or less educated, who are different ethnicities, who don't speak the same language that you speak, or don't eat the same foods that you eat, dress differently, smell differently. If we're really pressed on it, it's not because we have this, this deep-rooted religious tradition that we can't escape. Most of the time it's just like, because I just don't like it. I just don't like that music. I just don't like the way they talk. I, don't just, I, don't, I just don't like the way these people act. And by the way, we were talking about this a little bit in our Bible study this morning. A lot of people instantly go to like ethnic differences. Those, you know, and segregation based on ethnicity. And that's sad, that's tragic. But let me tell you, it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that. And the reason some of us don't know that, the reason we don't know it is because we haven't had to deal with an influx of people that we really just don't like. Some, some of you are very quiet, introverted people. What happens if the church is taken over by very loud, extroverted people? Some of you, you know, like to worship you know, with as, you know, I, it's minimalist worship, as little expression, lowest volume possible. Others of you, much more. What happens? Even in simple things like that. Some of us are very guarded about our lives. We're very guarded about what we want to share and what we want to talk about. And what happens if you suddenly are the church is full of people that are much more transparent. And you realize you can't really connect with them because they want to talk about their lives. They want to talk about what Jesus is doing. They want to talk about their doubts. They want to talk about their fears. They want to talk about their failures and their successes and their pain. And you're like, no, no, that's not what we do in church. In church, we build boxes. And everybody stays in their box. That's what happens. It's not just the big things that we usually think about. And I say all that to say this. What I see Luke is telling us in this text is that not every Christian will be happy with the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. Not every Christian will be happy with the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. We've been talking about being a healthy church. 
We've been talking about becoming his church. And I think we've made incredible strides in that direction of becoming a healthier church. We still got a ways to go. Every church does. I think we've made strides in becoming his church. But there, this, the struggle sometimes people have is they go, yeah, I want the church to be healthier, but I don't want it to change. Do you understand how that makes zero sense? I want to be healthier, but I want to stay the same. If you're already healthy, you can stay the same. But if we're going to become healthier, we're going to change. We're going to grow. The gospel is going to be spread. Lives are going to be changed. But there's always people, always people in the church that aren't happy with that. Small churches are small for a reason. And sometimes they're small for a good reason. The good reason is when they're, they're faithfully preaching God's word and they're, and they're trying to live according to God's word. And we know that whenever Jesus said some of the, the, like the tougher things about being a disciple, oh, the tens of thousands of people would disappear and sometimes it'd only be like a dozen or so. So we know sometimes just preaching truth and just wanting to live truth is going to keep a church small. But there's a whole lot of bad reasons churches are small. And one of them is because there are people in the church who don't want it to grow because they know when it grows, it's going to change. Some people like to go to like broken churches because if you go to a broken church, you can step in and, and you know, they feel like, I can help. I can save them. And they do. But then sometimes they do such a good job. They save the church and the church becomes healthy that, that it's not broken anymore. And people who came to the church because it was broken don't know what to do when the church is healthy and they get upset, or they try to break something else. There's others who, it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a pride thing. You know, they find like, oh, I, I, you, know, and, you know, I get to like do something, that, and you know, it's, it's, it's something about, you know, their, their, their self-worth. Others just kind of carve out little places, you know, uh, you know this, is, this is my pew, this is my committee, this is my ministry. Leave it alone. Just, just kind of work around me. You know, I love what's kind of happened with our worship team over the, the few years that you know, you know, I've been here. I love the fact that not only that the worship team grew, but that but people's egos went on the side. We, we don't have people that are like, you know, if I'm not playing every Sunday, or if I'm not doing the soundboard every Sunday, or if I'm not doing this every Sunday, I, you know, I'm just not going to come. I only come on the days, you know, when I serve, when I lead. No. 
I would say the vast majority, if not all, of the people that serve on our worship team, they're, they're here. Unless they have responsibility somewhere else, they're here. Because it's, it's, it's not just, that's my thing. It's, one, it's a problem, by the way, that it's not just the people in the pews. You, you know, pastors have this problem. I want to say young pastors have this problem because they do, but older pastors do too. Where, you know, they don't have to go to Bible study. They don't have to, you know, there's only certain people that kind of rise to the level where they, they can spend time listening to them or reading what they have to say. They've kind of ascended. They have this sense. And so the only Bible studies sometimes some of these people here are the ones they teach because they've ascended so far that they're the only preacher worth listening to or the only teacher worth learning from. Again, what, what I think happens when churches grow and churches change is, is we then benefit from each other. We grow from each other. I love when John preaches. And I don't just love when John preaches because, hey, I don't have to do as much prep that week. I do like that, John. Thank you. But I also like the fact that John brings God's word to us. And he brings God's word in a way that, that it's not the same as what I do. I love to meet with, you know, John and Chris on Wednesdays. Hear perspectives and insights. I don't think it's all about me and I'm the, the guru that, that tells everybody what to do. I'm the only expert that knows anything or even an expert at all. But churches become small and they stay small because some Christians in the church are not happy when the gospel spreads. They're not happy when when, especially when you start reaching new communities, new people. Our church is, is in a really, probably one of the weirdest areas, maybe for a church, certainly in Hawaii, if not, maybe the whole world, right? If you go this way, five, 10, 20 million dollar homes. You go this way, there's townhouses over here. You go this way, older community, been there for a long time, people different, is kind of mixed. You go over here, government housing in Pololo, all within like a mile or two of our church. One of the reasons I came to this church is because of where it was, that it's, it's in this place where we can become the center of this community where we can draw people from all these different communities to come together and be here together, be one body in Christ together. But if I'm from the $10 million homes and I don't want to associate with the people from the government housing, or sometimes vice versa, I'm from the government housing and I don't want to associate with people from you know, the $10 million homes, 
we can only grow so much. We can only grow in one direction. Not every Christian will be happy. These, these Jewish Christians, they understand what this means. They understand that now they're going to have to, you know, like figure out how do we fellowship with these Gentiles, these unclean Gentiles. You know, it shows up in another way too in churches. It shows up in another way where, where, and it's one I don't think we think about a lot, but where when a church starts brand new, and it starts brand new where just about everybody except maybe the pastor and a couple others are brand new Christians, it all starts together. And it's all, it's all good. But then what happens is after a couple years and people start maturing in their faith, then when new Christians come in, a lot of times the more mature Christians don't have any time or patience with those new Christians. They don't want to allow them to grow and develop the way that they did. And they don't appreciate it. They can be really judgmental. I've, you know, told this story before, but, but my dad, when he was out in pastoring out in Eva Beach, this was such a 70s thing to do. Um, but during Sunday morning worship and sometimes even in, you know, in evening worship, he would have, which if I had known the term then, I would have called it this, but he would have basically open mic night. And basically there'd be a live microphone and anybody could stand up and come and share whatever God laid on their hearts. And I remember one time, you know, being through this, and my, my friend, who had been a Christian for a few years, and he himself had come out of, you know, very, you know, rough upbringing. But I remember he used to, he used to complain about some of the people. He's like, that thing they shared was so trivial. And they're so like, oh, God, you know, God did this for me. And I would just hold him like, even then I understood like, you, you, they're, they're young, they're new. Everything God does is amazing, whether it's big or small. And we can't be so judgmental that we don't allow, we don't allow them to grow. And we also need to allow them to make the mistakes, the same ones we made, and maybe even some new ones. Not every Christian is going to be happy with the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. Let's guard our hearts. Let's make sure when God is starting to move and starting to do things and starting to bring people to us, starting to lead us to people, that we don't focus so much on the negative. We don't think about how that might change things, how I might, you know, lose my favorite seat, how I might have to stop going to growth group because we're going to start a new growth group. It's gotten so big. The second thing, though, that I love about what happens here from verse 4 down to uh, verse thir uh, 14, Peter 
takes the time to explain what happened. He takes the time to explain what happened. He could have easily said, like, why are you guys so judgmental? Why are you being so negative? Don't you see what God did? What is wrong with you people? He could have done all of that. He could have just said, you know, I'm not, I'm not dealing with it. No, he takes the time and he explains to them what happened. And the point that I get from this is judgmental Christians should also be shown grace. Judgmental Christians should also be shown grace. It's easy to make the judgmental Christians the enemies. It's easy to make the person that wants to divide and separate and not you know, associate with anybody who's not a lot like them. It's easy to make them the villain. It's easy to say, you're the bad person, figure it out. But Peter shows them the same grace he showed to the Gentiles. He goes to them and he explains what happened. He doesn't even answer their question. Their question is, why'd you eat with them? Instead, he tells them what they really need to know. What they really need to know. And what they really need to know is that the word was proclaimed to these Gentiles and the Holy Spirit showed up the same way he showed up back in Acts chapter 2. He extends grace to these judgmental Christians, these legalistic Christians. He doesn't just push them out. He extends grace to them. Make no mistake, they're wrong. They are wrong. Make no mistake that if they are allowed to have their view dominate the church, it will kill the gospel. It will kill the church. They're wrong. Their beliefs are dangerous. But Peter extends to them grace. And he tells them the story. And I think, again, that's what abounds here. That's what should abound in our church. If you find someone that, that, that you know like there's different reasons they don't want the church to grow, or they don't even think like that, because no one will want to say that out loud. They, they usually say something else. But you, you sense it. You know that they, they don't want to associate with certain people in the church or certain types of people. What should we do? We extend grace to them. What does that look like? Well, what it looks like is it depends on what the situation is and who the person is. Sometimes it's just modeling for them, modeling for them what grace is. Sometimes it's spending time and and really talking with them and helping them and say, what really bothers you about this? What's really at the heart of it? And really, there even are times when 
you're going to have to just pray and let it, let it go for a little while. I think there are exceptions. I think there's times when, when we cannot sit back. If someone's teaching something that's heresy, we, we need to stop it. We don't extend grace to false teachers. But in a lot of other areas, it's part of what it means to be the church. We confront when we need to confront we model when we need to model. We teach when we can teach. But we need to be a people of grace. And then the last thing that I see here, and it's something that we've, we've heard throughout the book of Acts, when it says in verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. So many times in the book of Acts, you see, you see the gospel and the Holy Spirit together, working together. You don't see the Holy Spirit work on its own. Sometimes you see the gospel just being proclaimed, but you never see the Holy Spirit just Holy Spirit. There's always the word in the Holy Spirit, or there's a sign, and then there's the word. It's very consistent throughout Acts, and we see it here. And what we see is when they heard this in verse 18, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What they recognize now that Peter had shared with them, that Peter had taken the time, shown the grace to explain to them what was going on, what happened is they immediately recognized common faith common spirit. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the spirit unite all who believe. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of, of, of the spirit overcomes animosity, overcomes prejudices, overcomes biases. And again, I just have to say this because unfortunately in our world today, that when people talk about things like tolerance and everything like that, tolerance has come to mean let everybody do whatever they want without you know, any thought, any judgment. There's no such thing as you know, right and wrong. I hope you know that that is not what I'm talking about. Because when the gospel of Jesus Christ gets a hold of us, when we really have faith in Jesus Christ, he is both our Savior and our Lord. And if He is our Lord, we will follow His word. And while I can, I can love and I can care and I can have compassion for people who don't follow His word, I cannot have unity. Not the kind of unity that's talked about in Scripture. I can only have unity with those who have faith in Jesus Christ, who are living or are trying to live according to his word and have the Holy Spirit in their lives. When that happens, 
sky's the limit. Who God can bring into our church can be anyone. It's the miracle of the church. It's the witness of the church. It's harder. It's harder to be diverse. It's harder to love people who are different from you. It's harder to to love people who understand things differently from what you understand. It's really difficult. It's a lot easier to be around people that are, you know, not exactly like you because I don't think any of us could stand that very long. I can't imagine if I looked out there and saw a bunch of mats out there, I'd be like, what am I doing here? But we have this, this kind of circle of what we find, you know, that we like, people we like to relate to. But the miracle of the church is when God unites in love as close or closer than a family, people who have no earthly business being together. No earthly business. The only thing that unites us, that holds us together, is our common faith in Jesus Christ, the power of the Spirit. That's the problem that the circumcision party was going to present to the church. They were going to deny the miracle. They wanted to limit the miracle. And so the question as we look back 2,000 years and then look back to today is, what about us?